0: This is episode 483 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As we see the church beginning to struggle as our culture runs out of track and is headed headlong into a brick wall, what are we supposed to do? In this message, we will look at the importance of men in God's plan and how we as men are often asleep at the wheel when it comes to leading our families in the things of God. But that must change, and it really must change today. So the question for each of us in the church is this, are we going to put up or are we going to shut up? And we need to come to a decision fast. After all, our wives and our children are waiting for us to stand up and lead. But be encouraged, for today we'll give you some tools to help you do just that as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, we had a, an election that went awry. We have half the nation, I believe more than half the nation. Well, actually, I saw a survey that was done that says 73% of Republicans, uh, 25% of independents, and 10% of, 10% of Democrats believe that the election was stolen, that the, there was something nefarious going on with the election. And so well, we've all lived... Uh, the edge of our seats to see how this is going to turn out and all of a sudden out of nowhere Texas decides to sue a couple of the swing states and the Supreme Court refuses to even address that because of lack of standing. Our, our time is running out for an electoral college vote and irrespective of how this happens, irrespective of whether we win or they win or nobody wins, half of our nation is going to be angry, angry and you 've just seen this last year what happens when just a small section that has political clout, political covering gets angry, nobody does anything about it, and then the church gets divided. you have know, this organization evangelicals for biden it 's shocking you know that you could even as a Christian adopt that platform you 've got other Pastors that are coming out saying there's no way you can even be a Christian if you vote for someone who believes in the wholesale slaughter and murder of innocent babies. And there's a split that goes on. The larger churches, the more mainline churches, the churches that are invested in their structure and their institution have a tendency of not being as vocal. The smaller churches have a tendency of being more, this is a general statement, being more secure and firm on God's Word. So what's it going to happen in the future? I mean, what, what what happens to the church here? Our government has come out and said that we will decide whether or not you can meet. And by and large, the church has pretty much agreed with that. You know, with the, the stipulations that we have in North Carolina, most of the, the churches agree with that, and they've worked around that by having... You know, online worship services and limiting the people to a certain percentage of the capacity of their building. And, and then you have states like California, which many believe has taken an overstep. And so, therefore, you have some churches that are responding by saying, We're not going to follow that law. And you can read in the, the online that some of these churches are getting fined thousands to ten thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars that may play out in court in their favor. Who knows? But it's uh, it's strange times in which we live. There's movement going on among elected officials that those of us who hold to a finite truth are standing contrary to what the government and the culture wants to move. And we can see that persecution is beginning to take place. And why should we be surprised? Because persecution has always taken place against the church. We've just been immune to it because we've been in a nation founded on the principles of God, and we have in God we trust on our coins, but we have moved away from that so much that as a nation, and as a church, man, we are ripe for judgment, are we not? Since 1973, our nation has decided that life only begins outside of the womb, and then it's only outside of the womb now if it's the quality of life that we accept, and the church in the beginning stood against it, but now they do nothing. And when you have these movements that want to go back and stand against abortion, then the rest of the church goes, well, that's just a passe issue, it doesn't really matter anymore. So what is the future of the church? What is the future of our church or the, or the future of the church in America right now? Well, let me make sure you understand that the future of the church as an entity Is eternal. Is eternal. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus kind of called his disciples together and he gave them this statement and he says, Who do the people say that I am? He wanted to know what other people thought. Well, some say you're uh, Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're some of the prophets of old. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter verbalized that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said this, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, this affirmation that you gave that I am God's son, I, Jesus says, will build my church, my ecclesia, my called-out ones. I will build that that mystical, supernatural entity where people from all nations and tongues are brought together by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. No matter what country they're in, no matter what Bible they use, or how they praise and worship, or their posture in prayer, those those that are truly redeemed by Him, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is not Hades pounding on the door of the church and all of us cowering down like that last day in the Alamo before Santa Ana and his troops wipe us out. This is the gates of Hades trying to keep the power and the life of the church out. And that gate will not prevail against the entity of God's church. True? But what about the institution of the church? Those are two totally separate things. We have God's supernatural church, and we've gone in there and made it an institution. We call it a Baptist church, or this denomination, or this organization, and or this 5013C3 tax-exempt entity. We have this building, and we have this way we do things. And when it comes to the institution, church is different everywhere. They worship different in Vietnam than they worship here. They're, they worship in New York and New Jersey different than they worship in the Bible Belt. They worship in California different. They worship in Mexico different. People worship different ways in different institutions of the church. I learned that so clearly when I went to Haiti, and I've shared that story with you before. Three weeks I was doing an audit in a the hospital there, and it came Sunday, the time for church, and. The patients with, you know, IV bags on their head were just walking in there and sitting down and, and their worship service by our standard was going to be a train wreck. And then all of a sudden they began to worship and I've never experienced anything like it in my life. People worship differently. But what about the institution? What about what, about what we know to be the truth? What happens then? Well, the church itself will always prevail, even an underground church, even a persecuted church, even a church in the first century that met in the catacombs under Rome. It will always prevail, but not necessarily the ease and comfort that we have church today. I mean, church is designed to serve us. It's not really designed to serve him because we have this buffet attitude about church. Well, I got this church here and this church here and that church here. And, oh, this church does the music that I like, but I really like this engaging pastor over here, but he preaches too long. Oh, this time if I go over here, I get out at 1145 so I can be first in line at the restaurant. There's a million different churches out there. And even though the church stands, the institutions may change. And quite honestly, quite honestly, Christians in America, maybe many of us, have become soft and lazy thinking that tomorrow is going to be like today, which was like yesterday. I mean, we all grew up, those of you that, like me that grew up in church, we, we all grew up in church, and we went to church, and, you know, they had Sunday school, and, you know, we had vacation Bible school, and we had these little quarterlies that we read, because nobody expected us to read the Bible, we just did the little quarterlies, and I remember we'd all sit around in a circle, and, and the teacher, and I hated when they did this, the teacher would, you know, had you read this verse, and you read this verse, and so we'd count ahead to see what verse we were going to read, and practice it to make sure, at least I did, because I'm terrible with pronunciation, practice it to make sure I wouldn't butcher it. And we read a Sunday school lesson and we, you know, have cookies and juice. And and then we just go to some worship service where some choir sang and a guy talked about stuff that I couldn't even relate to. And we went home and the rest of our life was different than church. It wasn't something that pervaded every part of us. It was just something that we did. And we always assumed it's going to be the same. This year, should have taught us all that that's not the case. We know that Jesus is coming. We know that a lot of things that are happening in our nation and in Israel and and stuff of that nature fit into end-time eschatology and prophecy. So why would we not assume things were going to be different? Let me show you how different they're going to be. I hope you're in John chapter 15. Amazing passage. We've preached through it several times, talking about the vine and the branches. Talking about the imagery, about what it means to be in Christ and connected to Christ. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So if you've got a picture of a vine in a vineyard, you've got Jesus saying that my father owns the vine, my father comes and harvests the grapes, and the grapes are for his glory, but I am the vine. The vine is the roots, the vine is the stalk, the vine is considered the branches, the vine is considered the fruit. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Later on, he goes on to say, And you are the fruit that um, are the, we bear fruit, that you are a branch, and I'm the vine, and you are a branch. And here's what he says in verse 2 Every branch that's connected to the vine, every Christian, in Christ, every one of us who claims an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, every branch in me, every collection of Christian, every church, if we want to call it, that is in me that does not bear fruit, that does not do what God has called it to do, that has instead decided to, to do things that they feel comfortable doing. every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He. The Father takes away, and every branch that bear fruits he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. We have a tendency of just kind of blowing over this passage because we like to focus on the abide in me, and if you don't abide in me, that you know be thrown away and all that kind of stuff, and if a branch does not bear fruit, it is worthless to the vine and to the vine dresser, and if you Studied it at all. The vine dresser takes that branch away because it's sat, it's using excess energy that can be used for bearing fruit. Because that's all the vine is for is bearing fruit. You can't build a house with the wood. It's too soft. The vine grows crazy kind of ways. It's not pretty to look at. It's not like a doesn't produce anything other than fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. We've always talked about the fact that judgment was coming to America. Billy Graham said many years ago, uh, and I don't know if it was original with him, said if God doesn't judge America, then he must, he must apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because of our sin. And our sin keeps growing and growing and growing. And, and again, we're not involved in this over kind of sin. But what we do is because it's so pervasive around us, we let our guard down and just kind of move into those areas. I was on Facebook yesterday, and I'm hardly ever on Facebook, and there was a post that was posted, and it was a, um, first time I'd ever seen this, it was a movie preview on Facebook, you know, coming films or something of that nature, so I clicked it, and within just 40 seconds, there was profanity in a a movie trailer, and so that's terrible, so I'm going to report that. And so I click the button where it says that you want to report this particular post and it gives you all the options that you want to report. And not one of them was profanity. Do you know why? Nobody cares. Because it's just an accepted way of life today. It's, it's okay. And it, we just slowly move deeper into darkness and the church is always a little behind the culture, but it moves in the same direction. So what happens? What happens to the church? As we go on and through John 15, we end with verse number, this section, with verse number 16, where the Lord says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's why you're here. And fruit that should remain. In other words, fruit that's eternal. Not just building edifices and institutions to our own glory. And whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give you. These things I command you that you love one another. Do you know why? Because if the church begins to bear fruit, look what the world does. Verse 18. If the world hates you, since or because the world hates you, know that it's not just you, that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And he goes on to say, if if servant and master motif here, if they've done it to the master of the house. Why should they not do it to the servant also? Does the world hate you? Do you suffer persecution because of Christ? Are you losing friends because of your commitment to Christ? Or are we just okay with our relationships with everybody else. We just try not to be quite as bad as they are. Hebrews chapter 11. Future of the church. And we need to embrace it. We need to realize it's here and it's coming. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, talks all about these Old Testament saints. Noah and Abraham and moses and many of the others and and towards the end of the chapter he begins talking about the not so well-known ones and then he doesn't even give names to some of the ones that are suffering and then many people believe he bleeds over into the current time of what christians were experiencing then verse 32 and what more shall i say for time will fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak or Samson or Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Just, just lumping those all together. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped from the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant, valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Those are such positive things you've done by faith. But it continues. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That' oh, great, Lord, look how great it is. I mean, is it all positive? Well, no, because there's a future. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might attain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings. That's verbal and scourging, physical. Yes, of chains and imprisonment. We see this just in the Apostle Paul, for example. They were stoned like Stephen. Yes, they were sought in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. They didn't live their best life now. that the Bible says of these people, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in desert and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. For God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Next chapter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Old Testament and New Testament, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That means a refocusing of our priorities. That means our success as men especially is not deemed by how big our business is, how much money we make, our... our 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 success for women is not based on the size of our house and how nice furniture we have or maybe the job we have or the kids or grandkids we have that is based on our ability to run this race with endurance that the Lord has set before us. How? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If they've hated me, they will hate you. If Jesus endured the cross, his church will endure the cross. If he endured the shame, then we will be shamed or put to shame or are maligned because of our faith. And Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and we are in Christ now, seated with him in the heavenlies. Now listen carefully. Here are some assumptions that we make about church today. Assumption number one, there'll always be a church on every street corner. Always. If you'll do a a study of nations who faced persecution, nations who first of all had governmental problems that led to financial disaster and it led to upheaval and stuff of that nature, that there aren't churches on every street corner. There used to be, but they're not now used to be that way in England, used to be that way in in Europe, but it's not now. But we assume it's always going to be that way because especially in the Bible Belt, if I drove from here to Franklin Square, I would pass 15 to 20 churches. Always be a church on every street corner. And you know what? Because of that, there's always going to be the hired holy guy. There's always going to be the paid staff that does the ministry I don't have to do. I don't have to teach my kids. I don't have to... I don't have to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I don't have to live righteously before them. I don't have to teach them about missions and join them in mission works. Man, we got mission pastors that organize mission trips, and all I have to do is pay for that stuff. There's somebody else going to take that task away from me. Always. It's always been that way. Assumption. Worship will always be what I enjoy. My kind of music is the kind of music I want to hear. And you know what? If they don't have the kind of music I want, then I'm going to shop around. I'm going to go, fu- go to all these different churches and find exactly what fits me. The style of preaching, how long the service is, whether the building's nice enough, whether somebody says, hey, how you doing? Or nobody even shook my hand and all that crazy stuff. I mean, because that's how it is in America today. We just go anywhere we want very little commitment to the family and a body of Christ. Because there will always be a preacher, always a pastor, always a teacher who will biblically do the heavy lifting for me so I don't have to. All I have to do is come and listen. Hey, that was really interesting. Well, are you growing in your faith? No, not really. On a scale from one to ten, where are you? Six, seven, eight. Because somebody else is supposed to handle that. That's your job to do that. That's not my job to do that. And if you look at it biblically, you know, the Bible says that if a woman has a question about something going on in church, about something in the Bible she doesn't understand, about a, just a, a theological, doctrinal, spiritual question, that she's to ask her husband. She's to go to her husband, her authority, who of course is so versed in the word of God that he can easily answer that question for her because what he wants to do is grow in fear and admonition of the Lord and she asks him because he's her hero. He's her spiritual leader. She shouldn't make it known to the whole church because you have a husband and if a husband's doing his job, that's what should happen. I mean, How many husbands do that? Most of the... Um the men that I talk to are intimidated by the spiritual lives of their wives. Well, she's more spiritual than I am. She loves Jesus more than I do. And You know, I, I, I you okay with that? You're not going to do anything about that? Well, it's just kind of the way it is. Assumptions about church. There will always, always be good study material available online for free. Because there ain't no way I'm spending a dime of my money to buy some study material to help me grow closer to the Lord because I got my money I want to spend on my stuff. I was going to bring a textbook uh, today that Krista uses. She's uh, getting her master's degree in midwifery, you know, to be. License in the state of North Carolina, and she took a particular course. And this book is this big, weighs about 20 pounds. It's that thick. It cost $140. $140 for one book, for one course. And as soon as she finishes, she's kind of done with it. Had no problem spending that. No problem at all. Because I, I want that. I want to move in that direction. It's, that's what I'm interested in. Well, yeah, how about, um, how about buying this book that helped? I, mean, I really can't afford that. I mean, I'm sure I can just find something online for free because I'm willing to go to college. I'm willing to go to some sort of specialized training. I'm willing to do whatever's necessary and to spend all the money necessary to do what I want to do. But when it comes to growing in our faith, we have a tendency, an assumption, to think that everything should be free. It should be free. Sunday school material was free. The pastor preaches to me for free. And sometimes, you know, the plate comes around and I can, you know buy my ticket, uh, all the materials are supposed to be given to me for free because church is about me. For me to sacrifice, to grow deeper in the Lord, I'd really rather not. Assumption again, church is always about me. I can come whenever I want, I can be late, and it doesn't really matter because it's just church. I would never do that in school, I would never do that to my mom's house if I told her I'd be there at a particular point in time. I'd never do that at my job. Hey, uh, you're supposed to be there at 8.30. Well, yeah, I'm going to show up at 8.45. Why? Ah, It's a a late morning. Really? But in church, it's okay. And why is that? Because we just don't respect it, I guess. Because we've come to believe that it really doesn't matter. I can do what I want. And uh, I don't really care how it affects other people. And I really don't care if it makes other people more uncomfortable. It doesn't matter. And I can live the life that I want, sin and all. I can be involved in the worst kind of relationships. And boy, howdy, if somebody from that church asks me how I can equate this action in my life, what the Bible says, I'm getting offended and I'm leaving and I'm going to go to some other church and they'll just embrace me, sin and all. Where did that come from? I mean, how? These are assumptions that we have about church based on our experience in church, but the day is coming when all of this will change because they're just assumptions. And I'm here to tell you, they're not going to play out like that in the future. They're not. Pretty soon, it's going to um, it's going to cost us something to actually claim to be a Christian. And I'm not really sure how many. And I'm primarily talking to men today. How many men will pay that price? The questions that I'm going to ask right now are primarily for men, since I am a man. And if judgment begins with the house of God, then in the house of God, it must begin with men first, since men are to be the leaders. They've been gifted by God to be leaders. Our culture tells you that you're not a leader, that you're just, you know, comic relief. And again, I don't know who made this decision, and I know I brought it up a lot, but I used to say that most of the... uh, the commercials that I see and television shows I see when they're driving a car always has a woman driving. It's almost everyone now. I can't even think of seeing a commercial about a car where the woman's not driving. I mean, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but historically, men drive. But now in our culture, it doesn't work there that way anymore. And for some reason, culture-wide, like the advertising agency has decided this is what we're going to do. There's been a feminization of men today. Not to to pick on them, but you look at a church with trendy pastors, they're dressed like gay people. I mean, literally, they're not dressed like men. Men dress like men, and they they dress like women. Tight-fitting, skinny jeans, you know. What happened? I mean, that's not John the Baptist. That's not John MacArthur. That's not Billy Graham. What happened? It's just part of the culture. What we accept. This is to men, primarily. Do you know enough about the Bible to spiritually lead your wife and children? Ask yourself that question. Do you? To some of you who don't have husbands, to some of you who are not married, the question still applies to you. Do you know enough about the Scripture to do that? Do you spend time studying God's Word? Are you personally growing in your faith? My, I say this the right way, and this is a judgmental statement I'm making about all of us. My feeling is the fact that most of us aren't. Because when you become a 10, you let people know. They can see it in you. And most of us are okay with a 7, 8, or 9, or a 5 or a 6. Because everybody else is that way. And we're just kind of okay with that. Church and Christ is not something that is the lifeblood of who we are. It's just something that we do. And if you are growing in your faith, is your wife proud of you? Hey, let me tell my husband, I'm telling you what, I just, I've seen so much spiritual growth in him. You know, he used to be a man that had a lot of temper, used to be a man that was really lazy, used to be a man that you, whatever. And now I see him studying and, you know, I, I get up in the morning and he's already in the kitchen drinking his coffee, reading his Bible. God, I'm just so proud of him. That ever happen? Kids, I want to grow up and be just like dad, just like mom. I want to have a spiritual life just like them. If you and I were honest with our children, would we not really tell them, no, you you don't really want to be like me. Um, You want to be better than me. Well, why don't you be better? Why don't you set that standard? I mean, men, for men, for godly men. Well, part of the reason is, how do I judge my success as a human being? Do I judge my success by the money that I make? Yes, we do. We live in America. Do I judge myself by the jobs that I have? Yes, yes, I do, because in my mind, you know, working for yourself and growing a business is maybe better than working for somebody else unless when you work for somebody else you can really advance up to the point where you have the corner office and everybody answers to you because that's just what entrepreneurs and America is all about. We don't want to take a job and just stay where we're at. We don't want to buy a new house that's smaller than the one we have. We don't want to make less money this year than we made last year because that's not what defines us for who we are. But hardly any men that I know Including me, to find success first and foremost by their relationship with Christ. You know, it really doesn't matter what kind of car I drive, really doesn't matter how much money I have, really doesn't matter what kind of vacation I take. What really matters is the friends that I have, the influence that I have, the people that I have that come to me for spiritual advice because Christ is, is welled up inside of me and my children look to me for spiritual leadership rather than me being asleep at the wheel. For men, we have a tendency of judging ourselves by what the culture tells us we need to judge ourselves by, and not what the Bible says. Question for men, does your wife feel confident in you to come to you and ask you a question she has about Scripture? Hey, um, Steve, I, I, was, I was reading in um, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Habakkuk. And, you know, it says here, so-and-so and so-and-so. And so, well, what, what does that really mean? What, what is he saying here? Where's Habakkuk at? It's one of those little ones in the, you know, the back of the book. I, I, I don't know. I never read Habakkuk. Well, why not? Well, I'm too busy in graduate school trying to get my degree so I can make a lot more money. Or I'm too busy working overtime because I want to pay for the boat or the car or the vacation. I'm too busy doing the things that I define as success as a man rather than what the Bible defines as success and if your wife has ever done that to you did you give her the right answer or did you tell her you know I don't know uh, let me think about it let me give you talk to you about it in three days and then never do uh, uh, you know what you need to do? call Steve call call them call the pastor, Or here's a couple links to some webinars that you can look at to kind of address that issue. I Googled them for you. And therefore, that satisfies my responsibility to be the spiritual leader in the home. And if the husband, if I'm not the spiritual leader in my home, then my kids are going to grow up not expecting the man to be the spiritual leader in their homes. And my sons are going to grow up realizing that I don't have to be a spiritual leader. I'll just be just like dad. And this problem, this systemic problem, begins to grow. Are we too busy with the stuff that we think is important? For men, it's probably work. For women, it's taking care of the kids and got to make sure all this is taken care of. And oh my God, there's just so much going on and so much responsibility on me that we do not become diligent to present ourselves approved to God, well pleasing to God. Well in what way am I well-pleasing to you I'm a worker I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ I'm someone who God has given given a ministry to who knows how to rightly divide the word of truth and is not ashamed of what I don't know. there's no there's no inerrant gift to this it's not like it's not like the difference between me and LeBron James I can try really really hard eight hours a day to dunk a basketball, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. I'm physically unable to do that. LeBron, it's no big deal to him. Even if he didn't play basketball, he could probably dunk a basketball. It's not based on that. It's just based on time and desire and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you because he's the one that actually gives us the instructions. To everyone, to all of us, a few questions. Would you like to know how to be proficient in dividing, rightly dividing the word of truth? Would you like to know? Is it worth it to you to put the time in to try to learn and understand a skill or an ability to be able to study God's word and have him speak to you? I mean, is it something that you want to make time for? Or is it something I just don't have time for? Well, why not? Why don't? Well, yeah, you do. We all have 24 hours in a day. And we're not, all, we're not working 12 or 14 of those hours in a salt mine where the time doesn't belong to us and the rest of the time we sleep. We have a choice with some of those discretionary hours. For a man, he works 10, 12 hours a day, let's say, by the time he gets there and comes back from his job. The rest of the time is his. Weekends are his. Evenings are his. And how he decides to use those determines whether or not you want to have the skills to be able to do this. Is it a sacrifice? Absolutely. Just like it would be for any of you who decided to change careers or to change professions and decide, you know, I, I, want, I want to do something different. You know, Justice has the um, Tomorrow's Filmmakers course. And so I happen to work at a mill or a factory or something of that nature, 10, 12 hours a day or 12-hour shifts for four days a week or whatever it is. But I don't want to do this anymore because I want to do something else. You know what I want to be? I want to be a filmmaker. And so the first thing I do is it costs me money. So I'm willing to invest in Justice's course to teach me the skill of being a filmmaker because that's a desire that I have. I've got to find that money by not spending it on something else. And once I do that, then I have to find the time. There are over a 100 hours of training, over a 1,000 videos that he has on that course. It would take a long time if I knew nothing to master other skills. But if I wanted to do it, I'm willing to do that, which means I'm not going to watch this football game today. I'm not going to sit down and just veg and and watch crazy stuff or get on Facebook for an hour, or stuff of that nature. Instead, I'm going to take my free time and allocate it into something I want to do. But it all begins with desire. And that's exactly how it is spiritually. It's where we judge our success. If you want confidence in being able to teach God's Word and have an intimacy with Him, then I'm going to invite you over the next couple weeks to become what's called a small-time pastor. I talked about this some on Wednesdays. Small-time pastor. Let me explain to you what that is. I can tell you what a small-time pastor is by showing you what a big-time pastor is. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about you standing in front of a whole bunch of people, thousand people, and singing songs and preaching with the same garb that you're supposed to do in the haircuts and all that kind of stuff. We're not we're not talking about that. We're not talking about you being a professional pastor. We're not talking about you pastoring a church. We're not doing any of that kind of stuff. We're not talking about ever standing in front of an of a auditorium like this. This is Willow Creek Community Church. Have you ever seen a building like that? Only on Broadway. Not not asking you to do that, not asking you to fill the stadium when Joel Osteen can't preach. That's not what we're talking about. So when we use the word pastor, small time pastor, please don't view that as what I do. Pastor is a leader, a pastor is a shepherd, a pastor is one who takes care of a flock. And that flock may be your wife. That flock may be your children, and for you women, the flock may be your children, uh, and it may be your friends and your neighbors and whoever God places in your midst. It's not the professional name pastor. Don't don't make a mistake there when we're talking about a small-time pastor. Let me show you what a small-time pastor looks like. It looks like a man who loves his wife. It looks like a man who cares for his wife, that treats her like a like a treasure that she is, that cares more about her than he cares about himself. It's a man that follows the biblical mandate that I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And because of that, I'm willing to make sure that she's not only taken care of physically, but she's also taken care of emotionally and mentally and most importantly, spiritually. That she will follow me as I follow Christ. It's a man that spends time with his family. That gathers his children around and opens up the Word of God excitedly and shares with them timeless truths that will change their life forever. This is a small-time pastor, a man that has a congregation or a flock of just his family. And by the way, women, if your man won't do it, you got to do it. You have to fill that void. Somebody has to be faithful in the family to be able to, to get this collateral blessing of God. It's a man who gets together with other men. And instead of talking about stuff that passes away, they actually open up the, the Word of God that maybe men have prayer meetings together, men have Bible studies together. I hear about women all the time you know, getting together at this store or that restaurant and having these little Bible studies. I hardly ever hear of men doing that. The only way we can get men to come to anything is to have a meal, and then it has to be top-down directed. It's very seldom do I ever see a man himself saying, I want to open up my house, do some other men on Friday night, invite some friends over and study God's Word. We ain't got time for that. We worked all week. We're tired. So did our wives. But for some reason, they seem more sensitive than we are. So let's assume we wanted to do that. How do we begin? I'm going to teach you some principles that'll help you hear from God every time you open His Word. And when you hear from God every time you open His Word, it'll change you. But before that, there's some things that you have to do on your own to be able to prepare your hearts for this. And number one, this is what it looks like. Does this describe you? When is the last time you got away alone, opened up your Bible, prayed, read, we're just mesmerized by it. And you can tell by this picture here. This man is deeply moved and troubled or concerned by what he's reading. Life-changing truth is taking care is taking place here. Or here. TV's off. Not going outside and doing the stuff that just fills our day. There's no Facebook, there's no cell phone. Here's a here's a man just sitting down, looks like a businessman, probably quite wealthy. Nice house, sitting down and open up God's word. And the kids walk by and see him doing that. What are you doing, Dad? Um, I'm studying for this, uh, again, for my own vernacular, my CPA exam. Oh, okay, move on. What are you doing, Dad? I'm just reading God's word. Why? Because it's important to me. What, are you teaching Sunday school? No. Are you preaching? No. Well, what are you reading it for? Because it gives me life, it gives me breath. There's no end goal of something. I'm doing it because I have to. And then all of a sudden our children see, wow, dad in a whole different light. And a man of prayer. Not just little arrow prayers. Lord, bless me. Thank you. Help me. Prayers. Where you're sitting down like this man, just off by himself reflecting, praising God, asking God, surrendering himself to God, yielding himself to the Lord. That we've been talking about Almost all of 2020, surrender to Him. This is something you must commit to. Otherwise, the steps and tools I give you will mean nothing. Nothing. And if we don't, then tomorrow's going to be just like today. If your kids are not interested in the things of God today, they're going to be interested even more tomorrow if you're not. If your wife doesn't respect you, Today, spiritually, or she ain't going to respect you tomorrow more if you keep doing the same thing you're doing now. If your family is in turmoil because Christ is not in the center of it and you've got a wife and a husband and he's combating, he's combating wills and maybe a teenager in there, all that kind of stuff, well, it's not going to get better unless you get better. Many years ago, in my multi-level marketing days with Herbalife, We've all had those experiences. I, uh, I heard a truth at a conference. This changed my life. And it's so true. It's a biblical truth. And he said this. He said, if things are going to change, you've got to change. It's not them. It's not their fault. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not the circumstances. It's not what you didn't have or other people weren't blessed in you. It's not any other thing but you. If things are going to change in your life, you got to change. And I am telling you, I can't tell you enough, we are at a point in time, a tipping point in time in our nation and in our church that if you continue on, if the church continues on the way it is right now, we will be crushed by what's coming out there. And if things are going to change, you and I have got to change. You have to make a commitment to men that I will be a godly man. I will study God's word. I will. I want to be a small-time pastor. As a woman who's living with a man who's not that right now, you pray for him and you encourage him. And when he feels confident enough to just share something with you, I mean, you, you applaud him for that instead of putting him down all the time. Because rough times coming. So let me just cover the basics. That's all we're going to do today. This book right here, do you even know what it is? By the way, just so that you'll know, this is not an app. It's the Bible. It's something that you write in. It's something that you turn pages in. It's something that can be tear-stained. It's it's something that, for me, that I have notations and dates on here where God dealt with me about something. It, it's, it, is, it is more than just a book we have somewhere and then leave them at church or leave them in our car and don't even know where they are. Somebody leaves their Bible at church. And I know, I know, this is me, I know, if I left my Bible at church and I got home and realized that it wasn't, I didn't have it, I would call me and I'd come back and pick it up. Sometimes weeks go by. Oh, yeah, I thought my Bible here. Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's sitting right over there. Oh, Okay. So then you ask the challenging question. Well, what have you been reading the last couple of weeks? Oh, uh, I, I have another Bible at home. You know? I mean, we do have another Bible at home. But it doesn't necessarily mean we read. I mean, be honest. Be honest. What is this that we have? Let me just share a couple truths with you by sharing with you what the Bible says about itself. These are verses that you already know. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. And these build on each other. So just follow the logic here, and then we'll close. All scripture, Paul says, in his last letter to his pastor's son in the faith, that he's trying to encourage to keep going after he's gone. All scripture. That's both the Old and the New Testament. That's Luke or John chapter 3 and Habakkuk and Obadiah and Amos. And the stuff that we have a hard time just wading through. Or Leviticus. Who likes the book of Leviticus? It is the only book in the scripture devoted to worship. To worship. Want to know how we're supposed to worship God? Yeah, I'll give you an entire book just on worship. All scripture is given by inspiration. That word means it's breathed. It's like God breathes it out into us. Some translations say all Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed of God. It's the breath of God. And it is profitable, beneficial to your advantage for doctrine and reproof and correction. And we can define those terms later. And instruction in what? Righteousness. Not how to be a good dad, how to be a good mom, how to be a, a good citizen or or. How to do these kind of tasks, but it's an instruction, and the most important thing is being holy as he is holy, instruction in righteousness. So why, why is the word of God even important? That the man of God may be complete. Note there's a caveat here. It doesn't say that all men will be complete, it says the man of God will be complete. Do you not want to be a man of God? Nobody exalts that title anymore. Oh, well, if you're a man of God, then that, then you had this unyielding prejudice towards anything that we want to do. If you're a man of God, then you know it's all going to be all about Jesus and a man of God. Nobody wants to hang around you anymore. And okay, is what we're doing working? That the man of God may be complete, may be perfect. In what way? What what will I complete about? What will I be perfect about? What will I be able to do? I'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Same phrase that Jesus talks about is deeds. Every good work. Am um, Am I interested in pleasing the Lord by my actions? If I am, this verse tells me how. If I'm not, Then the Word of God is just a bunch of stories. I know I should read it, and I know like in 1989, he really spoke to me through it sometimes. I remember there was a time that it kind of meant a lot to me, but I'm busy right now. I got things going on. My life is too chaotic. Plus, I have a problem. Um, How does God speak through men? I mean, this book was written by men, and of course, as you know, it is Flawless. There's no errors in it, because if so, we would all know that after 2,000 years of critics have combed over it. But how does that happen? How does God breathe himself into these people like Paul who penned these letters? Peter tells us about that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look what he says here. So we have the prophet, the prophetic word, Confirmed. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, we have this prophetic word and what we need to do is follow what it says. Knowing first. Why? That no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. When people talk to you about my Jesus, well, let me tell you what my Jesus tells me. You need to run. They ain't no my Jesus. There's just Jesus just Jesus. It's not open to private interpretation. You, you, know, you can't read one verse and I read another verse and your verse tells you to leave your wife and my verse tells you you're not supposed to do that and say, well, that, that's just what God told me. It doesn't work that way. It's not open to private interpretation. You know why? Because that prophetic word and that prophecy never came by the will of man. Never. It's not somebody sat down and said, you know what? I decided today I'm going to be a prophet and I'm going to write holy script. It doesn't happen that way then how did it happen? Holy men of God. Remember what the first requirement is to be a small-time pastor. That you pray and you read His Word and you confess your sins. You become that holy man of God who wants to please Him. Holy men of God, as they were moved, they were carried on and lifted up by the Holy Spirit. God inspired them to write his word Now, what about this word why is it so important verse you all know for the Word of God is living and powerful I put the Greek word up here that Greek word look like any English word that you know energy yeah it is living it's not dead it's not like a, a document that doesn't apply to us anymore. It's living and it's pulsating and it's alive today as it was back then. And not only that, but it's powerful because it has the energy, the ability. It's able to complete what it says it will. There's nothing you can read or watch or listen to that is, has the power of this word. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two edged sword. And the emblem here, or the imagery here, is this was the the sharpest weapon they had back then. It cut both ways, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joint and marrow, of the spiritual side and the physical side. And the Word of God is a discerner of your thoughts and your intents that you have in your heart. You may hide from people, you may hide from yourself. But you cannot hide from God through his word. Well, that's true. And what does Jesus say about it? Two more verses. Jesus says, and I love this verse, one of these life-changing verses for me. He's dealing with the, the Jews, the Pharisee at that time. He says, you surfed the scripture, and back then that was the Old Testament. That's the only testament they had. You're searching the Old Testament because you think in them you have eternal life by keeping the law. But don't you understand that these, the scripture that you're looking at, specifically when Jesus spoke this, the Old Testament, they're what's testify of me. The Old Testament testifies of Christ. When you begin to look at Jesus in every Old Testament story and even the strange, archaic rules that the Jews had, you can see Him in every one of those. The Bible today, the Scripture, Old and New Testament, testifies about Jesus. And one of the most amazing things here is the fact that God has determined for us that there's really one primary way that He communicates His will to us. And that is through his son. Watch this. God, the Father, who at various times and in various ways, what did you do, God? Well, I spoke. When? In times past, in the Old Testament time, I spoke to the fathers by the prophets back then. Wanted to know what I was going to do. I spoke to the fathers, but I spoke to them through the prophets. But right now, today, in these last days, he has spoken to you and I by His Son. By His Son, who is revealed in Scripture. Whom He has appointed heir of all things, to whom also He made the world. So how do we go about doing this? How do we understand God's Word? There's several steps that I'm going to take you through, and I'm not going to have time to... Well, am yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me five more minutes. Turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I picked this book because it's a book all of us have recently read, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When I I was up in the loft and I was praying, and God told me that this is the message he wanted me to preach, so I came back home and I opened up my Bible and I started reading Ecclesiastes, and he stopped me right here. I just want to read um, a couple of these verses. Verse 1. It says, walk prudently... When you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. What? Who who are we talking about here? Certainly not us today in the church. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. Well, it sounds like the Proverbs. Yeah, written by the same guy. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I don't know what that means. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. What? Most of us are reading this. We would stop and go, okay, let me go, oh, verse 4, when you make a vow, I understand the vow part. Okay, I got that. But we would read that and just pass on because our goal is not to figure out what it says, or how it applies to our life, our goal is to complete our Bible reading for the day. And we have determined that today, as part of our Bible reading, we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I can't be bogged down to try to figure out what I'm reading because I need to get through my reading so I can get on with the rest of the stuff I want to do today. You ever been there? And we just kind of blow over it like it's nothing. Let me give you... Let me give you just um, a couple steps here. That doesn't require you to look up any words. Doesn't require you to have any particular Bible software. Doesn't require you to have a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. It doesn't even require you to have a really good working knowledge of English. But let me uh, let me just give you some things here. Number one, stop. Stop. This ain't no race. You know, you're not, you don't get a prize by winning. It's not like, well, you know, I've got this agenda that I placed on myself, and I need to go ahead and get through this. I want to read the entire Bible in 365 days, and the last day I read was like October 17th, and I'm like two months behind, so i got to just jam it all together and skim as fast as I can. Why? Who told you? Who sold us the bill of goods that that's how Bible study done? That somehow God speaks to us as we're running through it, skimming just as fast as we can to cross it off our to-do list or our bucket list and feel like somehow we're special. That's not how God does. I mean, we don't have that kind of relationship with our spouse. And if we do, what a terrible relationship you must have. Hey, uh, I've got these few things I want to tell you, Karen. Okay, Karen, first of all, listen, I really love you very much. You're a really nice person. Thank you very much. And I really did. Happy birthday. Boom, I'm gone. Well, I did them all. Do you feel cherished? I don't even know what she's saying. We even do that when we pray. Lord, here's my prayer list. All right, Lord, let me read this off to you. Boom, thank you in Jesus' name. When we walk on. And he's up there going, I had a few things I wanted to share with you. And it's not what you share with God that changes lives. It's what he shares with you. Stop. Stop. Don't move any further until God speaks to you. Because he will speak to you about every verse in here. Even the Old Testament, which we're looking at now. If the Old Testament, if Christ is revealed in the Old Testament, that there's something here for me. So stop and take your time and just read it. Out loud. Get more senses involved. You can read it in your mind or you can read it out loud. And now I'm seeing it, I'm speaking it, and I'm hearing it. And there's inflections in your voice that sometimes allow you to have a different emphasis. Say each word out loud and emphasize each word. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Walk prudently. Prudently. That word means carefully. So I'm I'm to be careful when I go to the house of God. I'm, I'm to watch my steps when I go to the house of God. I'm to... I'm to guard my steps when I go to the house. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. What if somebody was giving me that instruction? What if I'm standing there getting ready to go into church, wherever back then the house of God is where the Holy Spirit dwelt. The Holy Spirit dwells here now in us because we're under a different situation since Pentecost. So I'm to be careful when I come into the house of God. What if somebody told me that? Hey, Steve, um, when you go in there, be careful. Walk prudently. God exists here. Walk prudently. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. To hear. It's not about me talking. It's not about me spreading my opinion. It's not about me doing what I want to do. It's not about church being all created about me. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too dark, it's too light, it's too loud, it's too soft, it's too long. Be careful when you go into the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. I I have a lot of questions. Exactly. And those questions will arise. Those questions will come up. What does this mean for me? What are you trying to say here? In what ways? Is it my conduct we're talking about? Is it my flippancy that we're talking about? I mean, do I really believe God is meeting he, me in, in a church or a cave or a catacomb and I'm, I'm to be careful when I come into the presence of God like Moses was when he, when he saw the burning bush? What does this mean? And as those questions begin to arise, you can... If you want, you can look at some of these words up to see what they mean. You can look at the context in which is written. You can try to understand what's going on here. But I'm telling you, the teacher is the Holy Spirit. And he will literally change your life by just taking a small verse like this and raising questions. I'm just stopping right there. That's as far as I'm going. As a matter of fact, in my own personal life, um, I've spent a day and a half on this verse this verse I reexamined my whole attitude towards church I reexamined what you know we try to create something that we feel comfortable with and it's made me question some things the word here means to hear and obey Wow! Well, didn't pick that up in the English and draw near to hear but not only here to obey Rather than to give what I think I'm going to give, the sacrifice of fools. Yeah, Lord, I'm doing what I want to do. We're singing the songs we don't really care about. My heart is cold. I've, I've got unconfessed sin in my life. You know, I come when I want. I leave when I want. I, I, just, I don't really care about this. It's just something that we're doing as a social construct. And here, Scripture says, man, be careful, careful when you tread on something that is holy. I won't even elaborate with that. I was going to share that, these seven verses today, and show you how to put this first step into practice, but we'll do that next week. For the next couple weeks, maybe for the next month or so, I'm going to give you every tool possible to allow you to be able to open God's Word and throw away all your preconceived constructs of what Bible study is all about. And... Read this as a love letter sent from him to you. And literally, it'll revolutionize your life. And when God speaks to you about anything in his word, it automatically, at least it does with me, bumps me from a seven to a 10. Just bam, God, I can't believe God spoke. Like Greg's testimony a couple weeks ago. Something, I want you to go to the hospital and I want you to pray for Trishan. And I think he told you that the Sunday before she passed away, correct? And Greg got up here and couldn't even communicate just what I shared with you. Just, Barry, go to the hospital. I want you to pray for Tricia. Couldn't communicate it without being overwhelmed with emotion because God spoke to him. God spoke to him. And once he speaks to you about anything in this word that he promises to do, life events take place. So men especially, I'm asking you to seek for something different. Seek for something deeper in your relationship with the Lord. Because it will change your relationship with your wife and your co-workers and your children and your children's children and your great-grandchildren if God so blesses you that way. And let's, as a congregation, begin this journey to help us become spiritual leaders of whomever God places in our sphere of influence. Because the day may come when the responsibility to teach your family will be on you and not necessarily somebody else. Amen? Let me pray.